night and then next week. And after uh, next week, we will be done with our series through the sermon. So I want to begin by uh, reading our, our text for tonight. Uh, again, we're in Matthew 7. Let me just start by reading uh, verses 12 through 23. Verse 12. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into a fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will, to de- I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Well, Jesus' words all of a sudden got far more serious. It seems as though he's turned up the temperature a little bit. And that is somewhat interesting because when we think about the Sermon on the Mount, we typically think of all of the encouraging things that we find in the Sermon on the Mount. Right? These few chapters are filled with so many encouraging passages. And we saw one of those passages last week. Right? Last week we, we saw we, we can bring any request before God and He will answer us. A few weeks ago we saw that our, our Heavenly Father, He sincerely cares for us. We've seen the fact that we do not have to worry about anything because God will provide for us. I hope that you've sensed the, uh, the, the overwhelming encouragement that comes from the Sermon on the Mount. And yet, tonight, here, juxtaposed next to all of those encouraging words are what we find here. Here, we find Jesus focusing on the consequences that come when we do not follow him as a disciple. Like I said, Jesus is turning up the heat. Now, uh, he, he is telling us that if we do not follow him, if we do not claim uh, sincere Christianity, then we will be cast out of his presence. And I just want to spend a moment showing how this passage does actually fit with the rest of the sermon. Because this does seem almost as though it's out of left field when compared to the encouraging words that we saw even last week. Remember though, throughout the Sermon on the Mount, there is this constant focus on the spiritual failures of the Pharisees. Remember that. 
We've seen that over and over again. Jesus told us, don't pray like the Pharisees. He said, don't fast like the Pharisees. Don't give to the the poor the way they give to the poor in order to be seen by others. Even, Even the way that we avoid sin is to look different in comparison with the way the Pharisees avoid sin. Remember, they were avoiding sin on an outward level, but not on an inward level. They weren't avoiding sin from the heart. And so Jesus says, avoid their ways. We need to obey Jesus from the heart, not merely outwardly. And this all ties into what Jesus has to say at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Remember, the very first thing he says, essentially, is if you want to enter into the kingdom of heaven, your righteousness must surpass that of the scribes and the Pharisees. You see, in a lot of ways, the Sermon on the Mount is this constant indictment against the scribes, the Pharisees, the religious leaders of Israel. And yet, that's not all that is going on here. Right? Jesus is not just creating this us versus them mentality. No, he's directing his intentions, his attention at all of his disciples. And he's saying, there will be a steady temptation to follow their example. Don't follow their example. Don't follow the ways of the scribes. Don't follow the ways of the Pharisees. You see, he's not merely just critiquing the way they do things. He's turning his attention at us and saying, don't follow the way they do things. Don't follow their example. Don't be like them. And now, as we move into the final section of this sermon, Jesus is turning his attention on the results that will follow if we follow in their way of living. If you live like the Pharisees, your destiny will be like the Pharisees. That's exactly what we see here. Your end will be just like their end if you imitate their faith now. So, with that said, let's jump into our passage. And and let me just show you how all of this relates. You know, at some level, it seems as though maybe Jesus is just like firing an Uzi. And it's like he's hitting this topic and then this topic. And nothing's really related. But I want to show you the logic of everything Jesus is saying. This is actually one train of thought. So he begins in verse 12, and he says, This is what true discipleship looks like. You need to treat other people as you would be treated. You need to be selfless. And then he says, This way of discipleship, this this narrow, uh, uh, or this this selfless lifestyle is, is the narrow gate that not many people are able to enter. And then Jesus transitions, and he tells us, As you're walking on this narrow path, There are going to be all sorts of false prophets who try to deter you and try to pull you off of that narrow way. And then in verses 21 through 23, we see that if you follow their way, if you listen to the false teachers, you will become like them in the end. You will arrive at the foot of Jesus and you will not be enabled to enter into his presence. So that's the overarching message of the passage. Follow Jesus' example of selfless love, lest you perish for following the Pharisees' example of selfishness. That's the overarching message here. So, back to verse 12. 
this does really set the stage for everything we see here uh, in these verses tonight. Verse 12, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. All right, this is critical to Jesus' entire sermon. The entire Sermon on the Mount is summarized in these few words in verse 12. Remember what we saw last, or the last couple of weeks. We, we are not to con- condemn in, in a hypocritical way. Instead, we are to treat others the way that we would want to be treated. We are to give to others when they come and ask from us. Saw that a f- couple months ago uh, when Christian taught. We saw also we are to love our enemies. We saw that we are to avoid retaliation. Jesus is saying here that, that the entire law, not only the Sermon on the Mount, but the entire law is summarized by these few words. Right? All of, all of uh, what Jesus has said in the Sermon on the Mount is summarized right here. And these few words, they, they express what the greater righteousness than the scribes and the Pharisees look like. Remember, he says, if you do not have a greater righteousness than the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. And here, this is a summary of what that greater righteousness looks like. I think this is similar to a passage. Many, many of us are, are very familiar with this passage as well. Jesus here is, is summarizing the law, and he, he's essentially saying the same thing. He's saying it a little bit differently in Matthew 22, in verse 36. You don't have to turn there. But here, uh, an individual comes to Jesus. He says, teacher, which is the greatest commandment? You probably know the passage. Jesus says to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. And then he says, this is the greatest, or the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. Now notice the similarities between what he's about to say and what he says in the Sermon on the Mount. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all of the law and the prophets. To put it more simply, following Jesus means that we are to be other-oriented. Jesus is calling us here in Matthew 22 and back in Matthew 6 to resist the temptation of selfishness and to live a life of selflessness. We do not give in order to be seen like the Pharisees. No, we give because we love. Uh, Another passage, Galatians 5. Here, Paul is explaining what it looks like to be a Christian. And he says this, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Again, notice the fruit of the Spirit is is fundamentally other-oriented. The the heart of the fruit of the Spirit is is selflessness. It's love expressed towards other people. You cannot express love unless you have someone upon whom you can pour out your love. Love does not mean anything in a vacuum. Love does not mean anything on an island. There has to be a, a, a beloved in order for a lover to express love. Notice, notice another example here in the, the, the fruit of the Spirit, kindness. Right? Have you ever tried to be kind by yourself? Right? Can you be kind 
on an island? Can you be kind alone in your bedroom? I mean, this, this reminds me of my son Theo, right? He, he's two. He just turned two. And uh, there are mornings where he wakes up and he, he's being all sweet, right? He's sitting in his bed just this morning. We were looking at, looking at our little monitor and he's like talking to all of his stuffed animals, being really nice, being really kind. And you might be tempted into thinking that he is showing kindness in that moment, right? That's not really what's going on. You can't show kindness to fake animals, right? You can't show legitimate kindness to inanimate objects, right? Not so fast, Theo. Love and kindness can't be expressed on an island. And here's how I know that, experientially with with Theo. When he is woken up in the morning, when I actually go in there and then put him on his, his changing table to change his diaper, he begins to yell, right? Okay, all that kindness towards his little stuffed animals, gone, right? And then I put him on the ground after changing his clothes, and he walks out the door. He doesn't say hi to his mother. He walks to his toys until he realizes he's hungry, and then he walks into the kitchen, and he starts to scream because he's hungry. Kindness vanished all of a sudden. You put him around people, and the kindness is gone, right? That's the reality, though, God is calling us to be other people-oriented. That's what what Christianity looks like. But as we see in a two-year-old, it doesn't come naturally to us. Being others-oriented is not in our our hardwiring system, right? Our our, our hardwired system is to actually be self-oriented. I want my food now. I want to play with my toys now. I don't want you to mess with me, Daddy. Stop messing with me, Daddy. I only care about myself, That's what we are hardwired to do. You see, kindness shown to inanimate stuffed objects is, it's a facade, right? It's faux love. And Jesus is calling us to live in a manner, not a faux love, not not of a facade, sort of a kindness. No, he's calling us to live in a manner that's completely contrary to our very Nature. He's calling us to live for others. He's calling us to be selfless. Love others in the way that you would want to be loved. And I, I just have to point out, notice how open-ended that is. Right? You can't summarize Jesus with a list of rules. Right? Jonathan Pennington points this out. Jesus doesn't just give us a list of rules to follow. You can't summarize his message in a list of rules. Instead, he gives us this vision for virtue. Be other-oriented. And if you want to do that, that's going to take wisdom, and it's going to have a million implications depending on the situation you're in. You can't summarize that with a couple of pithy rules. No. This is, this is a, a broader idea. Jesus, us, it, Jesus is helping us to see that following him is an other-first mentality that we carry into every given situation. And it may look different, no matter what situation we're in. And maybe you're feeling this right now. Maybe you're recognizing that this is a call to discipleship. And it's not just a call to discipleship, it's a very high call. This is a high call to discipleship. And it it, it may even feel unattainable to be selfless in every situation I find myself in? Yes. The reality is this is unattainable, right? This is unattainable apart from the grace of God. That's why we can't miss the fact that Jesus is speaking to us in the larger context of his entire life, death, and resurrection, 
right? He's giving us these commands in light of, of everything he taught and everything he did. Think of even the very last words that Matthew uh, quotes from Jesus, where Jesus goes back up on a mountain. It's kind of funny. Jesus' first speech is from the top of a mountain. His last speech is on top of a mountain. And in and, and the end of Matthew, he's speaking to his disciples. He says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I commanded. And then this is, this is key. For behold, I am with you until the end of the age. You see, the only way that we can obey Jesus is if he is actually with us until the end of the age, empowering us, giving us the ability to obey. The only way that we can love others with this sort of sacrificial love as true disciples of Jesus is if God, through Christ and the Holy Spirit, is dwelling in us and giving us the strength and the power in order to do this. Same thing we see in Galatians 5. Remember, that whole section is about the fruit of the Spirit, right? The fruit of the Spirit, this other orientation only happens when God, through His Spirit, comes to dwell in us and give, He gives us the ability to be other people oriented. This is something the Spirit does. Remember, Jesus' words are not void of grace, Right? Jesus' words are, are grace-bound. Grace is at the very root of what he is calling us to. And he knows that. The only way we can do these things is if he gives us the help so that we might do them. And that only comes through faith in Christ. And as you believe in Christ, he, he empowers you with his spirit. So as we move forward, <coughs> past verse 12... We see that verse 12 is really just preparing us for what comes in the rest of this passage, verses 13 to 23. Jesus gives us this high call for discipleship. Follow him by by living for the sake of others. And because this is such a difficult thing, it's a narrow gate. Few people walk down this path. Few people live a selfless life of discipleship committed to Christ. Verse 13, enter by the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. Those who enter it are many (coughs) for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. Those who find it are few. See, following Jesus is not easy. The cost of of, of living your life for Christ is not, it's not cheap. This is not a path that is well-traveled. Believing in Jesus and following Him throughout the course of your life is not an easy path to follow. Living for yourself is easy, right? That's what's simple. That's what comes naturally to us. Living for your own pleasures, that's what comes easy. That's the path that is well-worn. That's the path where there are plenty of people walking down that path, living a life for our own sake. That's what's natural. That's what everyone tends to do just by nature. Living for the the good of others, though, that does not come naturally. Living a life that is other-oriented, that does not come easily. A couple of us uh, in this room, we were at uh, Yosemite just a few weeks ago. And if, if, you were, if you were at Yosemite, I think you're going you're gonna to pick up on Jesus' imagery. 
right? The, the more a path is traveled, the easier it is to follow that path. You, you, you understand his symmetry here? It, that, that path is easy to find. It's well-worn. It's wide. There are a lot of people on it. It's an easy path. And the more difficult a path is, the less worn that path is. The more difficult a path is, the less people are on it. You know, it, it, it's tricky to stay on a path uh, that is, is less traveled because, for one, you, it's hard to stay on the path because it's hard to see the path. And for two, usually the, the, those sorts of paths are not easy to climb. So Jesus is just simply pointing out here that following him is difficult. Not many people follow him because his, his way of doing things is the difficult way of doing things. This is not a well-worn path or trail because there aren't a lot of people on it. Jesus' path does not come easy because it, re- it requires us with, withholding uh, from ourselves. It, it requires the difficulty of resisting the things that come naturally to us. Right? The, fo- the follow- following Jesus, this path, is, it, it's selfless love. It's sacrifice. That, that does not come easily. Th- think of the people in your life who, who have strayed off the pathway of following Christ. Think of all the people you know who have decided for one reason or another that they don't want to walk down this difficult path behind Jesus. Instead, they want to walk down the easy path. I remember for me, when I first became a Christian, I was, I was pretty discouraged because I, I just realized I don't know how to minister to other people. Here's what I mean. I, I remember the very first time one of my close friends, after I became a Christian, actually responded well when I shared the gospel with him, which was rare. Like, he, he responds well, he, he's baptized, he's in the church. It, was, it, was, it seemed really encouraging. And that, that was because I, I legit didn't have any Christian friends. Like, when I became a Christian, I didn't have any friends that were following Jesus. Most of my friends didn't care about Christ and they wanted nothing to do with him. And so to actually have a friend, like, hear the gospel and respond well, that, that was something that, like, legitimately brought me joy. And yet, that didn't last, right? It, it lasted six months. Sooner or later, he didn't want anything to do with Jesus at all. It was just, he, he just thought it was too hard. Didn't want to do it anymore. And simultaneously, while this is going on with one of my good friends, I'm also spending time with all of these kids uh, from uh, the, the city I grew up in, group of middle schoolers essentially from uh, a skate park, start coming to our youth group, and they decide they want to follow Jesus. So I start doing a Bible study with these kids once a week at the skate park, every week, hanging out with these kids, spending a lot of time with them, pouring time into them. And slowly but surely, every single one of them decided to turn away from Jesus. Didn't want anything to do with Jesus anymore. And so for me, I'm sitting there going... What's going on here, right? Every person I decide to pour into decides they don't want anything to do with Jesus, right? I I felt like legitimately defeated. My only friend who becomes a Christian decides he wants nothing to do with it. These kids that are just like hellions, (laughs) I'm spending all my time with them and they decide they don't want anything to do with Jesus. I felt like a failure, right? And, And when I think back on it, 
and, and begin to process the way I, I discipled these different people, I, I realized I did fail in my discipleship. And the reason I say that is because I did not give them a fair warning that following Jesus is not easy. I didn't give them that. And so I'm telling them, yeah, follow Jesus. Like, this is the way to go. And I'm not telling them that following Jesus is not as simple as praying a prayer and being baptized. Following Jesus is difficult. It means you, you die to yourself daily and you pick up your cross. And when I'm not sharing that to, with people, and they're like, yeah, I'll follow Jesus, and then realize, wait a second, this is hard. That's not on them. That's, that's on me for not allowing them to know, hey, you know this is going to get hard, so before you even bother committing yourself to Jesus, you need to realize that this isn't going to be easy. I never did that. You see, when we are discipling others, we need to make sure they know what they're committing to. We need to let them know that this isn't going to be easy. It's unfair to them to say, hey, follow Jesus, everything's going to be great. And then it turns out things are not as simple as they thought they were. As I said, the the path to following Christ, it's impossible without Jesus' intervention. Unless Christ intervenes and gives you grace, you're not going to walk on this path, and neither is the person who you share the gospel with. Unless you plead with God, and unless this person pleads with God in dependence, asking for his grace, none of us will be able to walk down this, this difficult trail that Christ is calling us to walk down. Now, as we enter this narrow gate and we follow this difficult path, we must be well aware of the fact that there will be individuals within our midst who are intentionally trying to to lead us astray. That's the next thing Jesus is pointing out here. There will be people, even within the church, who will warp the gospel and they will seek to pull us away from Jesus. Right? Makes the, the difficult path all the harder. Because now... There are people literally fighting for our soul, standing right next to the path, trying to pull us off of it. Look at verse 15, uh, verses 15 through 20. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the deceased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruit. The message here is simple. There will be many people who look like Christian leaders that turn out to be false prophets, false teachers. Jesus is telling us here that we actually need to use our discernment and our judgment in order to evaluate whether or not this person in front of you claiming to be a Christian leader is actually worth following. We are to evaluate our leaders. We're to examine their way of life. We're to take the time to look at their fruit. We need to to recognize whether or not their lifestyle is fitting for the gospel. Do they live a life of selfish or selfless discipleship? Are they living an other-oriented lifestyle? If not, then we, we should not follow them. I think it's actually important. Turn to Acts 20 with me. 
think it's important for us to see what, what Paul says in Acts 20. <clears throat> Here, you'll see in verse 17, Paul is actually speaking to the leaders in the church of Ephesus. And here it seems that Paul is actually quoting Jesus. So, so not that Matthew was even written yet, but Jesus' words were actually so popular at this point that Paul's actually able to quote him, even though Matthew wasn't technically written yet. So the, the tradition of what Jesus taught was well known. So Paul here is actually quoting Jesus. Look at, look at verse 26 now. Acts 20. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Overseers, same word for pastors, elders, uh, the leaders in the church. He says, to care for the church of God, which he obtained by his own blood. Verse 29. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So Paul here is looking at the the pastors and the elders in this Ephesian church, and he's warning, warning them that there are going to be fierce wolves that arise in this church, seeking to lead other people astray. And then, notice what he says, even some of you standing here among us, some of you are even going to be able to, or going to start teaching false things, and you're going to start leading disciples away with you. And now, I with that said, right, you would think Paul's main concern is just what they're teaching. But notice what Paul says throughout Acts 20. He begins to remind the Ephesians of what he taught, but also the way he lived. He keeps bringing up the character that he had. He keeps telling them to look at the fruit of his life and to look for leaders who, who resemble him, who, who have the same sort of fruit. So in verses 18 and 19, here he's telling them to consider how he served the Lord with all humility. Verse 33. This is interesting, right? So he's, he's talking about the, the, the tendency of people to become wolves and to devour the sheep And look what he says in verse 33. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Right? So he's just talking about the fact that he did not try to to covet after or steal the people's money. So he's not only focused on the things he was teaching. He's talking about the way he lived. And then he says in verse 34... You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who are with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. And we must remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So he's saying, look at me. I care for the poor. I take care of those in need. I take care of the weak. 
Paul, just like Jesus, understands that false teachers will not only be marked by the words that are coming out of their mouth, they will also be marked by the fact that they live worldly lifestyles. They're not selfless. They're not generous. They're not other-oriented. They do not love others the way that they would want to be loved. And so he, so Paul, just like Jesus, he's reminding his hearers that this sort of lifestyle that, that Paul exemplified ought to be the lifestyle they look for in their own leaders. <clears throat> More on this. I, I've always found it super interesting that Paul, when he's talking to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3, and he, he's giving Timothy qualifications for a pastor saying, hey, if anyone wants to be a pastor, here's, here's the job responsibilities. Here's, the, here's what it looks like to be a, a, a leader in the church. Here's what they need to be like. 1 Timothy 3, verse 2. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be thought well of by outsiders, so that he might not fall into disgrace. Notice here. Over and over and over again. What is Paul talking about when he's talking about the qualifications for a pastor? Is he talking about a skill set or is he talking about a character quality? Over and over and over. What is he concerned about? Character. And you might be thinking, wait a second, doesn't he need to be like really charismatic? Doesn't he need to be really likable? Doesn't, doesn't everyone need to love this guy and, and think that he's just like the best? Doesn't he need to be the best communicator? Doesn't he need to know how to use social media? Doesn't he need to do all those things? No. No, he gives, he gives like two real skill sets. He needs to know how to lead, and he needs to know how to teach. He doesn't even say he needs to be a great teacher or anything. He just says he needs to know how to handle the word of God. The rest of everything he says is related to character. See, this is why we need to be so cautious to follow someone just because that person's a good speaker. We need to be so cautious not to follow someone simply because they're passionate. Simply because they care about all the right causes. We need to be careful not to follow someone just because that person's charismatic, has a lot of friends. We need to look at the fruit. We need to look at the lifestyle. We need to look at the track record. We need to look at the wake that they leave behind them. Is it chaos or is it fruitful? Which is it? To be, to be perfectly clear, this is why a church needs to be patient before the church appoints someone to leadership. Just because someone can sing well does not mean that that person ought to be put on a stage in order to lead a congregation in singing. Just because someone is passionate about studying the Bible doesn't mean that person ought to be leading a small group. Not necessarily. And yet, there are so many churches that are just consumed with growing. And they're so consumed with growing that they will appoint 
anyone to a position of leadership just so that they can maintain their growth trajectory. Are you a Christian? Great. Okay, you can lead a small group. Are you a Christian? Great. We'll, we'll have you on stage. We'll have, there's no testing. There's, there's no evaluation of fruit. But we cannot be appointing people to leadership positions just because they have a skill set. We can't be appointing someone just because they claim to be sheep. Notice what Jesus says in Matthew 7. They're a wolf in sheep's clothing. They're claiming to be Christians. We need to be cautious. Because if we're not cautious, notice the ramifications of appointing a wolf. They begin to devour the flock of God. They begin to eat the sheep for their own good, for their own sake, for their own purposes. The way to destroy the church is by appointing people to leadership too fast. That's how you destroy the church. Not, not set it on a positive growth trajectory. Now, now, look here what we see in verses 21 through 23. Here we see at the very end of our passage that following a wolf is actually going to put you in a dangerous position, right? Surprise, surprise, right? If you follow a wolf, that's going to put you in a horrible situation. Not everyone, verse 21, who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Verse 22. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And cast out demons in your name? And do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Right? These are the most intense words that we find in the Sermon on the Mount. As we come to these final, final few verses in chapter 7, uh, we realize that there are severe consequences for those who decide not to follow Jesus, not to be a true disciple, but instead begin to follow another path. I mean, but here's the scary thing, right? These verses are essentially saying that there will be a wolf who doesn't even realize this person, they, they don't even realize to themselves that they're a wolf, and, and they won't realize it until it's too late when Jesus says, no, get out of my presence. There will actually be people who may even end up realizing after it is too late that they have turned out to be a meal for a wolf. Some people will come to Christ only to realize they never actually knew him, and they're going to find out too late. This does lead us to ask some, some really important questions, right? How in the world does this happen? How can someone not find out until it's too late that they are not a true disciple of Jesus, even though all along they thought they were? I think there's two key here. There's two keys to understanding this. First, verse 23, I think, is really essential for us to recognize. These people are actually workers of lawlessness. Right? In verse 23, Depart from me, I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. In their hearts, they were living for themselves. They were not selfless, instead they were selfish. I mean, this is actually a summary, a, a, a summary of everything the Sermon on the Mount is about. Right? This is a summary of Jesus' entire message. 
If you follow the example of the, 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 the Pharisees and the scribes and you, you pray to Jesus, but you have motives like the Pharisees and the hypocrites, you have these, these ulterior motives, you want to be seen by others, you want to be heard by others. If you give to the poor, not for the sake of the poor, but in order to be seen as someone who's generous, then it turns out you're, you're not a true disciple of Jesus. It doesn't matter what you do outwardly if your heart is motivated by ulterior motives. Though these people avoid outward adultery, they're committing adultery in their heart. And they don't have any remorse for it. They find pride in their outward purity while their hearts are corrupt. They may do things for Jesus in an outward sense, but their hearts are actually far from Him. They don't know Him. They're like the Pharisees and the scribes. They're they're true hypocrites. Though their outward actions look as though they're following Jesus, their hearts are far from Him. They have the wrong motives. And because they have wrong motives, they are workers of lawlessness. I think we, we should compare this with what we find in 1 Corinthians 13. I think Paul was clearly, clearly Paul was, was influenced by the Sermon on the Mount. Look at verse, or you don't have to turn there. I think this is probably a famous passage. Just, just hear these words, verses 1 through 3 in, in 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a claiming cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver my own body up to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Again, Jesus is is being quoted by Paul here. Though these people speak in the tongues of angels, because they do not have love, they are not true disciples. They're selfish. They're not selfless. They, they're performing all these gifts, these spiritual gifts, but they're doing so with all the wrong motives. They even have the gifts of prophetic utterances. They, they, they understand biblical mysteries. They even, they even offer their lives up as martyrs. Right? They even offer their lives up as martyrs, but they do not have sacrificial, other-oriented love. And because of this, they gain nothing. This is the same sort of hip- hypocrite that Jesus is talking about in the Sermon on the Mount. You can come to him and say, Lord, Lord, I have done these things in your name. But if you have the wrong motive, then you will gain nothing. So, so what is the solution? How can we make sure to avoid this sort of state, this sort of fate? I think it's important that we notice this. Notice that these individuals are coming to Jesus and notice what they're claiming. They have the right to heaven based on what they have done for Jesus. Jesus, look at everything I've done for you. Look at what I have done for you. They come to Jesus clinging to their own accomplishments as their burden of proof that they have access to the presence of God. You want my burden of proof? Look at everything I've done for you, Jesus. 
They tell Jesus, look at all the things I have accomplished. What do you mean I'm not accepted here? If you claim that your access to heaven is your accomplishments done for God, then you will have no part in heaven. If you claim that that your confidence that you're going to enter into heaven is is what you have accomplished, even if what you have accomplished is is for the sake of Jesus, if, if your accomplishments is your foundational reason as to why you get to enter into heaven, you will not enter heaven. Jesus is not looking for people who are confident in themselves. He is not looking for people who are, who are focused on their outward righteousness. He's looking for people who humbly call on him to save them despite their righteousness. Despite their lack of righteousness. And here's the deal. When you have that sort of attitude, a humble dependence on Christ you're going to be transformed by Jesus. And you're going to have a wholehearted work of righteousness following out. That's because the Spirit is working in you. Right? As you humbly submit to Christ, the Spirit will give you the ability to bear fruit. The true Christian does look different than the people of the world because they bear the fruit of the Spirit. And yet, this is important, that righteousness that the Holy Spirit produces in us is not your right of access into heaven. No, it is proof that you already have the right of access into heaven through your faith in Jesus. The the fruit is the proof of your true, sincere faith. It's not the reason you're getting into heaven. You see, true good works that are motivated by the gospel serve as a burden of proof that you have been transformed by the gospel. So let me just point out here tonight that if you do not feel that you're producing the fruit that ought to accompany a true understanding of the gospel, then I would just say simply look to Jesus. Every time you begin to, to look at yourself and evaluate your own self, for every, for every one look at yourself, take ten looks at Jesus. For every one uh, uh, look at your own intentions, look at Christ and what he has accomplished on your behalf. When you don't feel like you're matching up to the, the high calling of discipleship that Jesus is pointing us to here, Look to Christ, right? When the word of God stops you in your tracks and, and causes you to start, start evaluating your life, maybe you don't feel as though you're producing fruit as you ought to. Look to Jesus. Because the assurance that we have from looking at Jesus is far more reliable than the assurance we get from looking at our own hearts. Every time. Again, for every one look that you take at yourself, look to Christ ten times. You see, that is what these individuals in this text, they fail to do this. When they arrive at Jesus' footstool and, and, and Jesus confronts them, they say, look at everything I have done for you. Instead of saying, God, look at everything you have done for me. 
So when we, when we come to God's presence, we have to recognize our unworthiness. Right, when we come to his, his foot and we, we recognize our unworthiness, we say, you know what, I know I am unworthy to answer, enter into your presence. And so when I come to you, I come to you clinging to your son. That's my boasting. That's my burden of proof. What you have done for me, not what I have done for you. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful.